Let me tell you, do you ever battle with, struggle with guilt? Do you feel guilty that you don't feel guilty? <laughs> guilt is an interesting thing. It's a biblical concept, a biblical truth, and you have to wrestle it down. How does guilt play in my life? Is it to be positive, negative, constructive, deconstructive? Is it to be proactive, healthy, or is it toxic? What does the Bible have to say about guilt? It's interesting, if I were to use a few analogies, think of it. Water, a nice cold glass of water when your mouth is parched, is so refreshing. But if you don't know how to swim and I throw you into a lake, water can be dangerous. You can drown. Fire, it can heat a home or burn it down. Wind, wonderful. It's cooling effect on you when you need a breeze on a hot day. But wind in the vortex of a tornado or a hurricane is destructive. So it is with guilt. You can have godly, healthy guilt, or you can have very toxic, dangerous, destructive guilt. The Bible starts by saying it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And all the world is guilty before God. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point... He or she is guilty of all. So there's an aspect of the reality of guilt or being guilty, justly subject to a penalty or punishment. Not guilty or guilty. But how does guilt play in your life or mine? I always had a propensity to feel guilty all the time. As a little guy in St. Agnes grade school back in Chicago, when the nun would come in who would instruct the class and say, now who did that? I would all of a sudden, my countenance would look so guilty. And I'd be, I didn't do it, but I felt guilty. And she'd look at me and she'd say, did you do that, Gary? And I'd say, Sister Leonita, what a name. Sister Leonita, I, I didn't do it. She goes, you look guilty. I know I said I feel guilty, but I didn't do it. Do any of you have that tendency? You have that propensity toward feeling guilty? I remember I was driving here for the glory of Christmas, and it was, I, was get, I was a little late, and you know I had to be here, and uh, so I was driving quickly, and then my phone rang, my cell phone, and I picked it up. Usually I put it right on speaker, you know, to be hands-free, but I didn't. I grabbed the phone, and I put it to my ear, and you know that is illegal, but you're hoping there isn't a police officer around, but guess who was right behind me? And there I was on the phone, and his lights went right up, and I got pulled over. And I, I felt guilty. I was guilty, but not that bad of guilty. I just picked it up. And so the police officer looked at me, and he said, you, you, you look guilty. I said, I know I feel really guilty, but it just rang. I picked it up, and I was about to put it down. He goes, oh, Pastor Z. I said, oh, you know me? He goes, yeah, you speak at different public events. I said, oh, that's good. Can I have a little mercy? He goes, all right, get out of here. Like, oh, that was sweet. Thank you, Jesus. And that was because I made a good decision many, many years earlier when I was at a stop sign, and it was 4, 4.30 in the morning. Nobody was there. Nobody. It was a stoplight. And the stoplight thing was in Huntington, and it said no, no right turn. Now, I was out there, and I was like, okay. There's nobody around. It was like... Not only desolate, I thought everyone was dead. Even the lights on the street weren't working. It was like, why am I sitting here? I mean, think of it. The logic 
is that it's supposed to protect me from other vehicles and protect them, and there's no vehicles. So, you know, you have that little, like, do it. Don't do it. Do it. Don't do it. It's like, and I started succumbing. And I was about to turn. Thank God. I looked in my rearview mirror. You know who's parked right behind me at 4.30 in the morning? A police car. <laughs> so I looked. Oh, the lights. I said, is he? I wait. I wait till it turns. So I did right. Guilt is an acute personal awareness, both mentally and emotionally, of one's mistakes or failings or sin. That's the workable definition of guilt. So it's this keen, acute awareness mentally, but it's more than just your mind, your thinking, and your reasoning. Emotionally, it's more than you emoting or your feelings. It's coupling the two together, impacting your soul, your spirit, the totality of your being, aware of, acutely aware of, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically even, of the mistake or the failing or the sin committed, a moral issue. Because Holy Scripture is not arbitrary. There are things that are right and wrong. There are things that are defined as sinful and things that are defined as righteous. Things are not ambiguous or nebulous, even though our society would perpetrate such an idea or a concept or a philosophy. There are things that are right and wrong. There are absolutes. And there's moments in our life when we realize we violated them. And so what surfaces in us is guilt. Now, guilt is, in one sense, I don't want to make it sound like a science or make it so mechanical or technical, and I don't want this to be academic or cerebral. I, I want it to be relational. But there's, there's, when you unpack this in Holy Scripture, you'll realize that, that guilt is connected to your conscience and the voice of your conscience. Your conscience in the Latin means literally your inner voice. You would think it's always in harmony with God. Actually, they make a polemic or an argument for the existence of God, the existence of God, on the basis of the moral argument for God. They'll basically say, because you have this sense of ought and ought not on the inside, this moral governor, that means there must be a lawgiver. So that's one of the four classical arguments for the existence of God, the moral argument. And it's based on the human conscience. But we have to read what it says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. It says, for godly sorrow, and I believe contextually you can insert the concept of guilt, for godly sorrow, guilt, produces repentance, leading to salvation. But the sorrow or the guilt of the world produces death. That, that's showing there are two different expressions of guilt that can operate in your life. And as it's married to your conscience, it's connected to your conscience and the state of your conscience. Now realize, we sometimes think our conscience is always right, but it isn't. Why? Holy Scripture indicates different descriptions that are given to our conscience. Our conscience, that inner voice on the inside, that sense of ought and ought not. For some, according to 1 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 5, it says you could have a good conscience. It's been educated. It's been schooled by Holy Scripture. That's why it's so important to inundate your mind, to just baptize your mind with not just an academic study of the Bible, but to read it, to develop 
moral, ethical, godly principles in your life. I read many books, yes, but the primary book for me is the Bible. I want my mind to be saturated with the Word of God. And what that will do is it will educate your conscience to be in harmony with God's principles. Not being legalistic, but His principles that instruct you on how you should live successfully. He's not a cosmic tyrant where he wants to smash out your identity, personality, and destiny. He wants to accentuate it, advance it. And like a good physician, he wants to remove any disease, any failing, mistake, or sin that would defile your identity, personality, or a sense of destiny in your life. And so, as God works on our conscience, he develops it to become good and clear and clean. But in 1 Corinthians 8, it'll speak about a conscience that is weak, weak. Some translators will call it a guilty conscience, a weak conscience that is not educated, that could navigate through moral or ethical decisions kind of with a wavering. And so it has to be strengthened by Holy Scripture. And then there's a very dangerous evolution that can happen to your conscience. It's recorded in, in 1 Timothy in chapter 4. It says that your conscience can become seared, desensitized. You just don't define anything as right or wrong. Everything is palatable. And so if your issue of guilt goes down the right path, it's married to a good conscience that's been educated by Holy Scripture. That's the action point. You say, you know, I don't, I don't want this to be philosophical. What, where's the practical takeaway? An invitation to get into the Bible. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Personalize the Bible. Get it in so that it educates your conscience so that when guilt comes, guilt doesn't become a path to be paralyzed with condemnation and shame but actually becomes the impetus to motivate you to productive change in your life. So guilt can be a good thing or a bad thing, as I said earlier about water, fire, or wind. And so you have to make sure that you realize, wow, the prerequisite for me having a a good experience with guilt in my life when there's a mistake that is made or a failing or a sin is that I make sure that my conscience on the inside is educated by Holy Scripture. Now, again, as you do that, it's not something mechanical. It just happens naturally. You begin to look at life through a different lens, and you realize, oh, that's right and that's wrong. That's holy and that's unholy. That's righteous, and that's unrighteous. Basically, that's what will produce freedom, and that's what will produce bondage and captivity. And so your conscience is being educated by the Word of God. It marries itself then to the guilt that starts coming. Boy, I feel guilty. Now, this is a godly guilt, not a toxic guilt. Again, that godly guilt, I think three things will happen. You could put that up on the screen. Godly guilt can produce three things, and I believe all three are important. But the most important is what Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, repentance. That's the fruit of it. Godly guilt can produce a sense of regret. It can, where you are a little mad at yourself. You know, I should not have said that to her or to him. 
I shouldn't have carried myself in that way. I made a wrong decision, a wrong choice. I'm not going to create a, another narrative that kind of uh, plays it down or makes it more palatable so I don't feel so guilty. No, I'm going to face reality. I should not have done that. Or I should have done this. I omitted doing that, and I should have done that. There's moments, and that's healthy, for maturation and growth spiritually and emotionally, mentally, spiritually, every area in your life, that it's important to say, okay, I'm going to embrace this. It's a godly guilt. There's a regret. I actually feel a bit mad at myself. And then there's also the remorse. I feel a little sad. That's the impact on your emotions. Boy, that really hurt her. That really hurt him. I should not have made that choice. Or when you violate a command from God, and it's a sin. God, I feel the regret. You've loved me so much, and I don't know what got over me, but I succumbed to the, to the knocking on my heart's door with that temptation, and I sinned against you. I, I, I have that regret. I have that remorse. I feel mad, and I feel sad. But you got to get to the place of repentance. Repentance actually is void at its epicenter of any feelings. It has everything to do. It's intrinsically built into, innately built into repentance. is based on the words that are used in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew word is shiva. It means to change one's direction. In the New Testament, the Greek word that's used is metanoia, to change one's thinking. So the heartbeat, the epicenter of repentance, is not tears rolling down your cheek even though that can complement repentance. Regret and remorse can complement repentance, but never replace it. Repentance is a shift and a change in one's direction. That's biblical repentance, to change your direction, to change your thinking. Initiated, the genesis comes from it's God doing that as you yield. Because in Romans 2, it says, don't you know it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? So his repentance comes, and that comes, it's activated by a good, godly guilt that's married to a good conscience so that it triggers healthy, productive change in your life and in mine. And then there's that incredible divine exchange that happens when you reflect on maybe not a mistake or a failing but a sin in your life that you just can't recover from. You look at it and you say, there's absolutely nothing I can do to alter this. I made that choice. I made that decision. I expressed that action. I displayed that attitude, and I can't alter it. I cut this, and it can't recover. I produced this, and it can't be pulled back. I said those words, and I can't retrieve them. You're so aware. And now, again, you got to be careful at those moments. I know in my own life, I have to be careful that I don't allow myself to get paralyzed. A guilt, this sorrow that leads to death, this guilt, this toxic guilt, that starts to paralyze me under condemnation and shame, then I'm going nowhere, and I'm not going to be able to help anyone, and I get inordinately preoccupied with myself. I want to say, Lord, okay, I want, me, I want my heart to respond now, not just with regret and remorse, but true repentance. 
I sense the guilt. I've got to come to you. But I don't know how this can be altered or shifted or changed. It's a negative. But here's the beauty of the gospel. He descends with that vertical touch. And he changes that negative into a positive by his presence. He does something that you could never, ever do. He can redeem a situation. His very nature is redemptive. He can take a crooked stick and make a straight blow. It's a mystery if you apply logic or your own philosophy or rely on your own effort, ability, ingenuity, creativity. You can't alter it or change it, but God can. And that's the great, incredible exchange. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, in him. It's interesting that when theologians, Bible commentators exegete this portion of Scripture, they're like shocked at the Apostle Paul, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he penned this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, penned by the Apostle Paul, but of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they say, wow, he communicates the idea that Jesus became so close to sin that he almost describes him as being a sinner. We know that's not correct. That would be heretical, but he gets it that close. You can't even superimpose the idea of what this is to be interpreted as a sin offering. No, he says, and he who knew no sin became sin. Now, some schools of thought skewed off course and said, oh, Jesus actually became a sinner, lost his deity, and needed to be redeemed. That is abhorrent at variance with the teachings of the Bible. Jesus never loses his deity as he bears our sin. But he got so close to it. So close to it that it was like he became one with it. Imagine that. But that's the strength of this verse. Likewise, consider that the righteousness of God then gets that close to you. It pierces every area of your life. All of a sudden, it accentuates the voice of forgiveness louder than the voice of shame and condemnation. Because he who knew no sin, became one with so close with, covered with it so intensely that you would almost blur and think that all he was was a pulsating sinner. That's how close he came to it in bearing our sins so that we could then become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That his righteousness would be more than just imparted. It would be imputed into your very being. You would be more than clothed. It would become who you are. The righteousness of God. That's what God does in this divine exchange. That's what he does when it comes to condemnation and shame and sin in your life and mine. He can wash you clean. You can deny it. You could suppress it. You can use a rationale to create a completely different narrative and convince yourself, no, I've never really sinned at all. But you know deep in your heart, the scripture says it well, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We have to humble ourselves and say, Lord, this area I need to bring to you. And then as guilt, godly guilt, connected to a good conscience, moves you to a position of change, repentance, then you say, Lord, I receive the promise 
of forgiveness in my life. You know what happens then? There's an explosion of gratitude. You hear that from David when he says it in Psalm 103 in verse 2 and 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities. You see, there's a gratitude that rises up from within your heart. It's a gratitude that acknowledges God's presence, that recognizes his promise, and then it gives expression to thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is just not some mamby-pamby expression of words of praise. It has a gripping power. That's why in Philippians 4 and verse 6 and 7 and 8, it says that, you know, with prayer and thanksgiving, because thanksgiving grabs on to a promise and pulls it in. When you give thanks to God for the reality that he can alter and change any sin in your life, even redeem a mistake in your life, a failing And that guilt can just begin to get lower and lower. See, what happens at that moment, even godly guilt gets lower and lower. And the volume, the decibel level of his voice of forgiveness gets stronger and stronger in your soul. And you can hear, I forgive you. 1 John 1, verse 9, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, I've written these things to you, my brethren, so you don't sin. But if you sin, know you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, because he who knew no sin became sin that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I'll tell you one of the strongest ones, because I told you I've wrestled throughout my life with guilt, guilt, guilt. And I've had to say, oh, God, I've got to educate my conscience. I don't want that toxic guilt in my life. It paralyzes me. It pulls me down, holds me down, holds me back. Even can come from from loved ones around you. You know we live sometimes in a guilt culture. And then they try to dismiss it and say, well, don't have it at all. No, no, I want that godly guilt. I want it to trigger that regret and remorse and then eventual repentance in me. But, Lord, I want my conscience to be good and not seared, and not weak. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, you know what it says there? It says that your conscience would be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, washed by the word of God. I want my conscience covered by the blood of Jesus, the sacred sacrifice covenant establishing work that Christ did at Calvary. I want my conscience completely washed by the blood of Jesus and by the word of God. And then here's what I'll do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. What I do is when I get that sense of guilt, and I almost feel it pushing me one way or the other, toxic or healthy, I grab on to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament because there it, it says so beautifully, in Christ, in Christ, redemption has come to us. Redemption has come to us through his blood, the forgiveness of your sins, according to the riches of his grace and mercy. What can wash our sins away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's stand together. And would you, in your heart, just say, Lord, I want to lay this all at your feet. I want to bring before you right now the sense of guilt on the inside. I don't want it to be unhealthy. I want it to be healthy. I don't want it to be toxic, destructive, and subjective. I want it to be objective. I want it to be real, but I want it to be 
from you, Lord. And God, I want you to cleanse me on the inside and on the outside. And I don't want to operate anymore, anymore in my life with a guilt that binds me up. I want it to be a guilt that launches me into repentance and then experiences your promise. Would you just close your eyes and would you hear that scripture? I think some of you really need to hear this. I don't care how old you are in the Lord. There can be some things that you did in your past that just visit you, talk to you. You remember those things more than what, you, what Jesus did at Calvary. The volume of the guilt over that area because you just felt like it could never be redeemed. It could never be altered or changed. I did it. I blew it. It's over. God is redemptive. In Him is redemption. By the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of your sins, according to the riches, not the poverty, the riches of his grace and mercy toward you, toward you. Would you believe his report more than your own? Would you believe his voice more than your own? Would you educate the voice of your conscience with his voice that speaks over that now, that you can walk out in the righteousness of Christ by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Come on, let's say thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. What can wash me white as snow? The blood of Jesus.